invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And this morning we've come to chapter 16. Actually, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 15, since I believe this text really holds together starting in verse 5, and then we'll read through the end of chapter 16. Revelation chapter 15 uh, begins with, um, let's just start at verse 1, we might as well, and because that's uh, where we're introduced now to seven angels with seven plagues, and these are going to be the seven bowls of wrath that we read about. So let's just begin at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and at the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven uh, was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And remember now, as we're reading, these are visions. This is not a journalist report. Uh, This is what John saw, and they're they're telling us great things, um, and we'll get to that in a moment. But just remember, this is not a... um, This is symbolic. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, just, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." 
The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its, waters, uh, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink, drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountain were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell up from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh Lord, <clears throat> we trust that you have a word for us, uh, that this is something Jesus wants us to hear and to understand, and so we pray that your spirit, who's been given to that end, would uh, give us ears to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning we uh, come to one of the most reviled uh, teachings in all of scripture, at least to uh, the surrounding world. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, The Reason for God, uh, says that, quote, in our culture, divine judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. Uh, the modern Western world is uh, sincerely and deeply offended by the idea that there is a God in heaven who will one day judge this world and cast people into eternal hell for their sin. Um, they, are, they are sincerely offended. What I mean by that is that this simply does not make sense to the world in which we live. There's no category for something like this. The reason for that, at least in part, is that in the Western world, um, God has been replaced, moved out of the center of things, and in his place, we've inserted uh, individual self. And um, so the chief end of man is not to glorify God and, and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man, and this is a given in our culture, this is what people know to be true, the chief end of man is to live an authentic, self-willed self-chosen life. That's what an, an authentic life is. It's, it's the life that you dream, the life that you choose, you will, you desire. God has nothing to do with it. And it feels profoundly unfair then to the modern man to think that he can live his authentic self-willed life doing as he chooses to do going the way he determines to go, uh, determining his own truth, 
It seems profoundly unfair to that man to think that at the end of his life, he will meet a God who will judge him because he failed to do things God's way. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I mean, who is this deity, and what in the world makes him think that he has the right to stand as judge over my authentic, self-willed, freely chosen life? Who does he think he is? It is profoundly offensive to people. Unfortunately, he is... God, the eternal, unchanging, everlasting, living, righteous God. And one of the things that Jesus does here in the book of Revelation is presses down upon us and and upon the God-denying world in which we live the reality of God, the unavoidable, overwhelming weight, significance, and reality of God of God. And so our text this morning is specifically about the judgments of God on this world. We've been noting the judgments of God uh, ever since really chapter 6, where uh, the lion, the lamb Jesus, is given the scroll and he begins opening the seven seals, which if you remember, the seven seals, the, the scroll represents the purposes of God in the world. And, uh, and so as Jesus opens those scrolls, we see both protection for God's church and children and also judgment on the world. And then in chapter 8, we see it again, these seven trumpets. And again, we have a third of the earth being destroyed by the judgments of God. And now we have the seven bulls, and now the entire world is being affected uh, by the judgments of God. And so we've, we've come here to an, an intensified and final judging act of God, uh, as it says in chapter 15, verse 1, um, that with these bowls, with them, the wrath of God is finished. There's a, there's a finality here. And there's three things specifically I'd like us to see this morning concerning this judgment of God, the wrath of God. I first want you to note that it is personal. That the, the text makes clear that the terrible things that we read about in Revelation chapter 16, they are from God, ascribed to God. They are the bowls of God's wrath, not an impersonal um, force or event or circumstance that happens because somebody tripped a lever somewhere. This is the conscious, intentional act of God. These bulls represent his personal response to evil. Notice the angels in verse 5, chapter 16, 5, specifically ascribe these judgments to God. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. You brought these judgments. Nothing in the text gives a hint of trying to protect God from the charge of being a God of judgment and wrath. Everything in the text promotes, supports the charge. And that's important 
Because there's an increasing tendency in our day uh, to define God, um, amongst Christians even, as only love. Uh, with a clear implication that he is not a God of wrath. He's not a God of judgment. Now, of course, uh, our Heavenly Father is a God of boundless love. He is love, the Bible says. He loves His own glory. He loves His Son. He loves His creation. He loves His children, His church. And it is precisely because God is consumed with a loving passion for all of these things that he vows to punish everything that seeks to destroy or harm those things. If you love your children, nothing will arouse your indignation more than seeing someone attempting to harm or hurt your child. It's your love that is the fire behind the wrath. And that's exactly how it is with God. It is because He is a loving God that His wrath is personal against all His enemies. The text wants us to see that God is not reluctantly entering into these judgments. He means this. He intends this. Eric Alexander says these judgments originate from His heart. And flow out according to his purpose. They are personal. Secondly, they are just. Tim Challies points out that people misunderstand the wrath of God because they assume it's like human anger. Quote, too many people associate God's wrath with human anger, which indeed is often arbitrary and mean. The truth is that God's wrath is always the wrath of God as judge. Thus, God's wrath is always a measured, just, judicial wrath. And so when we think of God um, as a God of wrath, we shouldn't think of a parent just losing it, someone who just lost control. This is, this is God in his judicial stance as judge, as um, he's not just he's not just losing his temper, but 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 he stands with an unwavering, unremitting, irrevocable commitment to reward evil with justice, to punish evil with justice. And so we have the reoccurring theme of the saints and angels. In these chapters, for instance, chapter 15, 3, the song of the saints, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Just and true. In chapter 16, the angels in verse 5 and 7 worship God for the justice of his character, verse 5, the justice of his judgments in verse 7. True and just are your judgments. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God's judgments are just? Well, it, it, it means that they are perfectly correct and righteous. It's the same word, just and righteous. In, in other words, that God's judgments, as he responds to evil, he does so in perfect keeping with his own perfectly holy, righteous character. And that... In every way and to every degree, 
God's acts of judgment fulfill every aspect and standard of justice. There's not a shadow between the character, the perfect, holy, righteous character of God and his acts of judgment. This flows from this, right? The, The acts flow from the character and share that perfect status. And so that means that no one, not even the devil himself, can accuse God of being unjust to the slightest degree in his judgments. Uh, if you've ever visited a prison or a jail and, and had an opportunity to talk to the inmates, uh, you will uh, not be having conversations very long before someone will come to you and ask for your help because they believe that um, in their case there was some uh, act of injustice that they in some way were not treated fairly, there was some failure of the judicial system, maybe they uh, are completely innocent, and they will come and tell you their story. Unfortunately, they might be telling you the absolute truth. Human courts err. They're not infallible. There are people in prison today who should not be there. Justice has not been appropriately applied. And so they have a right to complain, you see. But there will not be a single person in hell who has that right. The justice of God's judgments being rooted in the perfection of his own being are perfectly just. Third, they are true. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing. Sinclair Ferguson, I think, helpfully points out that that. While just refers to the facts that that God's judgments are in perfect accordance with his perfect being and will, true uh, means that his judgments are also in perfect accord with the evil that has been done. And and that's also seen here in the text. If you you notice uh, in verses 2 and following, we have the pouring out of the first three bowls. In verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then we have this interjection of the angel over the waters. Who's just seen, now we don't know exactly how this works, but the text is just telling you there's an angel over the waters, sees God's judgments and destruction on the waters. The waters turn to blood. Blood is a sign of death. That's what's being communicated. And the angel responds, verse 5, just are you, O holy one, who was and who is. Notice it doesn't say who is to come, which we've had in the past. Why is that? Well, be, because here he's come. He's present. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's what they deserve, blood for blood. God's wrath, and we see this throughout Scripture, is always in perfect relation and proportion to the nature of 
the sin. In Romans uh, 2, 20, uh, verse 5, Paul says, he will give to each one according to what he has done. J.I. Packer says, the explicit presupposition of all that we find in the Bible concerning the experience of God's wrath is that each receives precisely what he deserves. And so you notice as we go, th- as, uh, we go through the seven bowls that the recipients of those bowls are all covered with guilt. In verse 2, the people who received the punishment, quote, bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Covered with guilt. Verse 6, the bowl is poured out on those who have shed the blood of God's saints and God's prophets. Guilty. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. We've read all about the beast in the last few chapters. The ally of the devil making war against God and against his church through political coercion and through deception. Guilty. Uh, Verse 19, the seventh bowl, the wrath falls on Babylon, whom we're going to be told in in chapter 17, is the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, drunk with the blood of the saints. And so you, you can sense that God's judgment is a just, righteous recompense. It is what is deserved. And so Eric Alexander again says, the judgment of God is not primarily intended to reform or even restrain sin. It is primarily intended to reward sin with what it deserves. I would think that a chief part of the misery of hell will be the the recognition that Every torment that you are receiving was earned, deserved. There will be no comfort for those in hell who who can say, well, in my case, there was injustice. The torment is true. The judgment is true. It is in perfect, irrefutable accordance to what I've done. And so this is the reality of God's judgment. It's personal, it is just, and it is true. We just got to feel the weight of that. Secondly, we see the response of the condemned. Three times in verses 8, excuse me, verse 9, and verse 11, and verse 21... We're told that people um, did not repent. They did not give God glory. They did not repent of their deeds. Instead, they were cursing God as they suffered the anguish of the torment. Now, if, if, uh, if, as we were reading through this, hopefully you were thinking, wait a minute, I've, I've heard about uh, these plagues before, hailstones and blood and frogs. What does that sound like? It sounds like the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the, the plagues are nearly identical. You see, Jesus is painting for us a picture, but he's using images we will, will recognize, colors that will make sense to us, taken from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, if, if you remember the Exodus story, when God brought the plagues, um, did Pharaoh repent? Well, he would relent for a while, but he never repented. 
Uh, he would try to resist. He would try to get his magicians to do something similar. Um, he would relent just to see if he could get away with something, but he never repented. No matter how awful the pain became, even to the death of his own firstborn, even then Pharaoh would not and could not repent. And so it will be on the last day. Verse 21, great hailstones fall from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. What you see here is just the intransigent binding power of evil. Intransigent means that you refuse to change direction or your view. You see, in a morally sane and sensitive world, people would, under the judgments of God, be willing to consider whether or not those judgments were deserved, that there, if there was something that we have done. We see this in the history of our nation. If you, just maybe if you're curious, read Abraham Lincoln when he calls the nation to prayer during the Civil War. It is, it's unbelievable language for a president as he just says, it's clear that we're under the judgment of God, that we have forgotten God. And we've offended God and we need to repent See, that's a morally sane, sensitive, morally sensitive world. But that's not what we see here. Here we see a world given over to evil. And evil cannot and will not repent, even though they know that the judgment is from God and is just. One of the things that has struck me as I'm reading this is that these people are not in doubt as to where these punishments are coming from. They know where the plagues come from. They know who to curse. There are no atheists. There are no agnostics on the day of judgment. Secondly, no one is protesting that it's unfair, and no one is asking why. They know why. God is judging them for their sin. But rather than acknowledging God as God, and repenting of their idolatry, their worship of the beast, they enter into eternal hell blaspheming and cursing God. Now that's an insight into evil. Why does, why does that happen? Because that is the nature of evil. You see, Evil is not, at its heart, a failure to do the right thing. That's the fruit of evil. Evil, at its heart, is a desire to defy God. And, and that's why, as, as Augustine, St. Augustine confessed many centuries ago, the thrill of stealing the pear, he, talks, he tells a story about stealing a pear, from the neighbor's pear tree, and, and recognizing that the thrill wasn't in gaining the pear, the thrill was in transgressing the commandment. You see, it's, nobody wants to touch wet paint, unless it says don't touch the paint. And the thrill, then, you see, is the rebellion. It, it, and you just look, look around the world today. What, is, what do you see? What's the thrill of the sexual perversion of our age? It's not about the pleasures of sex. People have been enjoying the pleasures of sex, right, in, in monogamous, godly Christian marriage. Um, evidence shows more than. It's, 
It's the rebellion. The high isn't the sex, it's the idolatry. It's, it's this whole person rebellion against God. That's the high. That's the evil. That's the idolatry that, that we need to be rescued from. You see, that's the bondage of sin, that there's something profoundly wrong with us, that we delight in defying God. That's the spell that has to be broken. Well, finally, we see this morning the ways of God, verses 12 through 17, and I don't have time to unpack all these verses completely. We're going to be dealing more with this battle uh, in the following chapters, but, so this morning, just let me, let me point out two things. First, uh, redemption is warfare. In verse 12 and following, you have, a, you have armies assembling for battle. Um, so these demonic spirits come out of the mouth of the false prophet and the beast, and they go all over the world uh, to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. There's been a lot of ink spilled over uh, what this means, what Armageddon means. But if we, if we keep the big picture in mind, these bulls, six and seven, represent this final demonic attack on the church uh, as in, in opposition to God. So the kings of the world stand for the political and religious and economic uh, forces of this dark, evil age arrayed against the church. I think we're starting to get a sense of what it feels like to have the armies of uh, the evil one assemble as we are seeing increasing alignment in our day between uh, economic, political, and social forces aggressively promoting the deceptions of the devil and the beast. That's what's happening. But what's Armageddon about? Well, very quickly, uh, this is, uh, um, it means literally the Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo was um, well known in Old Testament Israel. It was the de facto battleground of Israel. If Israel is at war, it's usually on the plains uh, of Megiddo. In one way or another, this is where enemies would sweep in from the north, and, and so the battle would take place. You can read of it over and over in your Old Testament. There is, interestingly, there's no Mount Megiddo. It's a plain. Mount Megiddo then is Armageddon, Har being the, the word for, the, uh, for Mount. Um, mount Megiddo just, just means here's a, the place of conflict, the place of spiritual conflict. There's a, there's a great spiritual battleground that Jesus is, is, uh, is, is pointing us to. As the enemies of God gather, they assemble to attack the church. Uh, we are living in Armageddon. If you want to know where is it, uh, it's right here. We are engaged, right, in spiritual warfare. Not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of this dark evil age. Paul says that. The battle is here, the battle is on, and it will most likely seems to me increase, that this seems to be speaking of a great final conflict. But we do not have to be afraid because victory is at hand. Jesus is telling us this. Notice when the sixth bowl is poured out on the river Euphrates, it dries up. That seems sort of a strange thing. But if you remember your Old Testament, you know that when waters dry up, God is on the move. When the Red Sea waters part, God is doing something. 
When the uh, Jordan River dries up as Joshua and the, and, the, and the army of God is about to make their way into the land, God is up to something. When the river flowing into Babylon dries up because uh, uh, it's the end of the empire and the, the hand is written on the wall, mene, mene, take all you farson, uh, this, uh, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that very night, uh, Cyrus and his soldiers uh, divert the river that flows under the, under the wall and the river dries up and they make their way in and the kingdom of Babylon is destroyed. Over and over, God is executing a victory for his children, deliverance for his children, and judgment on his enemies when the waters dry up. And so we're told here that the water dries up to prepare a way for the kings of the world. It seems to them, just as it did to Pharaoh and his host, a path opens up for them, uh, a miraculous path. That they can go through and attack the church. All obstacles seem to have been removed. And so they drive their chariots down into the Red Sea, convinced that they are moments away from finally and fully crushing the Israelites. They're so close they can see the shore. The waters of God's judgment crashes over them, sweeps them away in the wrath of God. And the people sing the song of Moses. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to know. That's what's happening. Uh, the forces of the enemy, yes, they're assembling. Uh, obstacles seem to be removed. We might lose uh, the, the rights that we have in this country. Uh, most of our brothers and sisters know nothing about those sorts of rights. Obstacles might seem to be removed. And yet, as the enemy rushes in to attack the church, what they're actually doing is rushing towards their own destruction and the just wrath of God. Victory is certain. But there's a word here for the church, and I'll close with that. In the midst of this uh, vision, Jesus speaks directly to the church. Verse 15, listen to what he says. Behold, I am coming. I'm coming like a thief. In other words, we're not going to know when. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus, friends, is hungry for the eternal welfare of his sheep. And he wants us to understand that the greatest threat we face is not persecution. It's apathy. Spiritual apathy. The greatest threat to our happiness is not martyrdom. It is just falling asleep and accommodating it. You see, it's, it's possible, Jesus knows this, it's possible for people to be in the presence of God, in the presence of truth, in the presence even of, of glory. People were, they saw Jesus, they saw the miracles, but they didn't, they didn't run to it, they didn't embrace it. And, and, and that's possible in the church. You can be in the church. You can be a member of the community of faith. But the, but the truth is, though your body is here, and maybe intellectually you have some assent, the fact is that your heart belongs to the world. What you love is your, is your house and your job and your family and your vacations, your hobbies. That, that's what you love. That's what you actually live for. And so when persecution comes, you, will, you won't be able to stand because you, you simply won't be able to bear losing the things you love for someone you actually don't. And so like Lot's wife, you'll look back because that's where your heart is. And on the day of judgment, you'll be lost 
because your heart wasn't embracing this Jesus. And so, and so I think if we recognize this danger, and the danger dwells in absolutely every single one of us, then what is the power that keeps us awake? You know, when you're, when you're driving home and, you're, and you desperately don't want the little ones to fall asleep because if they fall asleep, you're going to be up all night. And so you're asking yourself, what in the world can we do? Put the windows down, turn the music up, uh, say funny th- What do we do to keep them awake? What is the power God has given to the church to keep you awake, to keep me awake? The power is the gospel. The power is the gospel. Because, you see, that alone is going to break us free from the, 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 the lies that we believed and the idolatries that we love. So Paul says, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And when he means salvation, he doesn't mean that initial moment of belief. He means the whole thing. Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. This is the power of God. How does that work? Well, we're told in Scripture, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith in what? Faith in what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. You see, the the gospel, friends, is God's miraculous mercy to people under judgment. When we read Revelation 16, we can easily think this is the wrath of God belongs to other people. People who don't go to church. People who don't believe the things that we believe. right? People who don't live the way that we live. Belongs to other people. Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that the wrath of God is our reality by nature, by virtue of being children of Adam, and every single one of you are. By nature, the wrath of God is our reality. And Paul wants you to feel that reality. You, you, which means, you see, when you sense the truth of that, that the, that the reality of Revelation 16 is, is what you actually were born into by nature, then the glory of the gospel comes in, in, in further in Ephesians chapter 2, that but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive in, together with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses under the judgment of God. And how did Jesus do that? Well, you know the story. But I think it's so stunning here in light of this text that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came to this earth, took on the guilt of our sins, and willingly drank the cup of wrath. You see, all the fury that we see here in Revelation chapter 16 was poured out on him as he bore our sin. He took that cup of wrath reserved or deserved by us, due to us, and Jesus Drank it. Remember what he says in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of divine judgment. And yet he drank it, and, and, and God the Father willingly poured it out. He poured out his holy wrath on his son that he might pour out his holy love upon us. And now, friends, there are two cups in the hands of God. There is what Paul calls the cup of blessing, the sacramental cup. The cup that Jesus lifted up to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And there's the cup of wrath. And every single person in this room will drink one or the other. If you stay asleep, dead to God, bound in your sin, you will drink the cup of wrath. You will experience the horrors of Revelation chapter 16 in your own person. 
Going to church will not protect you. Believing certain Bible truths will not protect you. Only Jesus, friends, can protect you. And only as you turn to him in faith and repentance. Jesus is appealing to you this morning. If you are asleep, wake up. Judgment day is coming. I am coming, Jesus says. I am coming like a thief. You don't know when it is. David Haney had no idea when he woke up this past Sunday morning that, that he would be in eternity in a few hours. You don't know that. I don't know it. And so Jesus says, be awake. But, but maybe we're awake and we get drowsy. Here's the truth you see that can once over and over again. Knowing that my Jesus took the cup of judgment that I deserved and he drank it so that I can drink every day the cup of blessing. Every day I can drink the grace and truth of God for me in Jesus Christ. That life-giving wine that signifies that I've been reconciled to God. I've been robed in righteousness. What, what, what is so wonderful to me about Revelation 16 is that Jesus drank all the horror of Revelation 16 so I can drink all the beauty and glory of Revelation 21 and 22. The bride of Christ, the holy city coming down out of heaven, God wiping away the tears from my eye, God dwelling with men and being their God. That's the blessing, friend, that Jesus has purchased for us. And, and, and if that's true, then let's let world and kindred go, right? This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but that truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. And if you've laid hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his forever. Let's bow together. Oh, God in heaven, let these truths change our lives. We're sleepy people. Oh, Father, I thank you so much that these things are true, that they stand, that we've seen today that the reality of a just true God who will judge the world with perfect justice and truth. But I thank you, O oh Father, that you so loved this world that you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to drink the cup of wrath that we deserve, that, that we might be set free from judgment that we deserved and that we might receive as a free gift all the grace and life and health and peace forever purchased by our Savior. Oh God, I thank you that Jesus was willing and, and as he wrestled in the garden, he was willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. And he was willing to go to that cross. He was willing to suffer the wrath that, that we deserved. That he loved us to that extent, and now being raised to life and seated at the right hand of God, he lives able to save us. Lord God, I pray for anyone here this morning who is not converted, who simply has, has just been sleeping to the things of God. Oh, please, Father, by your spirit, wake them up. And Lord, some of us who are being captivated by sin and tempted to, to walk in uh, our own way, Oh, God, please use this truth, the wonderful love of, of Jesus Christ and the severity of the judgment of God to wake us up. That we recognize we are dealing with eternal things, holy, awesome things. And how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? 
And so, Lord, we just pray for sensitive hearts to the glory of God, sensitive to the reality of our sin, and sensitive to the beauty of our Savior who is able to save us. And to the uttermost, all glory be to his name. And God's people said, amen. Let's respond just rejoicing in our Lord Jesus together. We're going to sing Man of Sorrows as he took the wrath of God in our place so that we might be delivered. Let's stand together and sing.
like to read from Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is what God promises to us in Jesus Christ. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.